Thanks, Sherry. Well, our newspapers have been telling us that the economic signs are going this way, up and down, depending upon what you read. The unemployment rate is going down. That's good news. Rate of inflation is remaining stable or perhaps even declining a bit. That's good news. Interest rates are at record levels and seem to be heading lower. That's good news and bad news, depending upon which side of that equation you're on. Recently, we've heard another statistic that relates more to us as a body of believers, and that is that for the first time in history, the number of missionaries from North America declined. Now, that is good news and bad news. It's bad news in the sense that it seems to be saying that there's less of an interest in missions in North America. Now, we shouldn't understand that to be the same as saying that the kingdom of God is in crisis. Because some of the other nations and areas of the world are sending out missionaries at record numbers. We're talking about missionaries from North America. Missions in North America is in crisis. That's not all bad. Because it is time for mission agencies, missionaries, churches, and congregations to rethink this whole idea of missions. This time of crisis is really an opportunity for us to evaluate what's going on in the world and how the methods that we have used for the last couple of hundred years may not be working anymore. And we need to create some new paradigms or models for missions. Because of that, I thought that I wanted to include in this series of messages that end today on SOS something about missions. I've tried to make uh, the SOS series this summer focus on urgent messages that all of us need to capture in our hearts. This morning we want to talk about sending out servants. I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 13 as we do that. It is imperative for churches to take a fresh look at missions and to be willing to make changes where necessary in order to fulfill the great commission of our Lord Jesus. And the place that we start always is by taking a new look at the Word. What does the Word of God say about this whole matter of missions? This is Labor Day weekend. We need to talk about the labor force of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Acts chapter 13 says, There were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers... Now, the way that the subtleties of the language that Luke wrote in work, it seems as though the prophets were Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene. And the teachers were Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, 
Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. We have here in this brief passage the genesis of the missionary movement. Now, missions has been the heart of God from the very beginning. There are elements of missions even in the covenant with Israel of the Old Testament. But that was an element that Israel by and large neglected. And certainly as the church began on the day of Pentecost, there was missions in the heart of it. The Holy Spirit will come. You shall receive power and you shall be witnesses unto me in all parts of the earth, Jesus said. But years went by and not much happened, at least beyond the immediate area of Palestine. We see here in this text that some of the people who had left Jerusalem and had traveled northward along the coast to the capital city of ancient Syria called Antioch. Antioch was a cosmopolitan city. It was a place to be. It was sort of like the, the New York City of that day. It was a port city. Although it was located a few miles from the sea itself, it had a port city that it was connected to. It was on a, a river of commerce. A half a million people lived in the city of Antioch. So we're not talking about some dusty Palestinian village. We're talking about a major city in the world of that day. And there in that city, there was a church that had begun because some people from Jerusalem who were Christians had migrated northward and there had started the work. In fact, if you'll turn back a page or so to chapter 11, you'll see a little bit of the history of this church. Verse 19 says, So then there, they that were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. So this is a thriving church. This is not a church in a storefront somewhere with 10 or 12 people who are part of it. We're talking about a church with hundreds, maybe thousands of people who were a part of this fellowship. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Now Barnabas was a wonderfully gifted man. He had been born in Cyprus, well-respected, a man who loved to encourage others, and already by this time, Barnabas has met Saul, the former persecutor of the church, and has befriended him, has introduced him, really, to the apostles and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And after a time there, Saul left and went back home to Tarsus, where he has been now for several years at this point in the book of Acts. Now it's this same Barnabas who is there in Jerusalem, who is sent off to Antioch, 
And it says, Then when he had come and and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Those are high marks, great compliments that the Spirit of God pays to Barnabas. We would all do well to emulate him, wouldn't we? And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. Isn't that interesting? He said, I've got to have help. God is doing such an amazing thing here. I've got to have somebody to help me. Now, who in my file here could help me? He goes back through the cards. Here's S. Saul of Tarsus. Oh, yes. There was Saul. He's been up there for several years now in Tarsus. I'll bet he's ready for something like this. And so he traveled a few hundred miles north again to the city of Tarsus. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And it came about that for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Now then things began to change. Things got tough in Jerusalem. And it says that at this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be great famine all over the world, and this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea, where Jerusalem was. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. And so Barnabas and Saul as a team represented the church at Antioch, brought this sum of money to the church in Jerusalem, for the relief of the saints living in that region. Now, chapter 12 tells us about some things that happened in Jerusalem. If you go on to the end of that chapter, it says that the word of the Lord continued to grow, to be multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now, that comes into play a little later here in the book of Acts. But notice now they have returned back home to the city of Antioch and they continue their ministry there. And it's in that context that Luke goes back to Antioch in his narrative and begins to lay out for us the genesis of the missionary movement. In the text that we've read this morning, we discover several principles that I believe will outline for us the place and the practice of missions in the local church. Now when we go to the book of Acts and we look for principles like this, we have to be a little cautious in that we aren't exactly like society and the culture was in that day. Things are a lot more complex these days than they were then. It's a little bit like comparing apples to oranges, and yet they're both fruits, And so as we compare our situation today in missions to what it was like then, we're in the same category, but it's a little different. And yet we would expect to find in a text like this some principles that would guide us regarding missions. And that's what we're really looking for as we look at these three verses. The first principle I see is this, that missions 
or sending out servants. I've got to get my SOS in there. Sending out servants begins with the heart of God. Missions is God's idea. It did not originate with the apostles in Jerusalem. It did not originate with Barnabas and Saul. The elders of the church in Antioch did not go and retreat and come up with this great idea in their brainstorming session, let's send out missionaries. That is not how it happened. It began with the heart of God. So if we want to model God's heart, which I hope we do, we also want outreach to new peoples and cultures to be an essential part of our ministry. Because missions is not the idea of the church. Missions is God's idea. Somebody has said God only has one son, and he made him a missionary. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. God delights in saving lost people. It exposes His mercy and His grace. It exalts His Son and the work of His cross for the redemption of the world. God delights in saving people, and God desires that the whole world know the story of redemption. I repeat, that is not the church's idea. It's God's idea. We see clearly in the text that it is the Holy Spirit who is the instigator of the action. It is the Holy Spirit of God who gave birth to missions in this text. The Holy Spirit said, separate for me Barnabas and Saul. I wish Luke had included a few more details. It would be interesting to know how the Holy Spirit said that. Probably he said it through one of these men, some of whom were prophets. Now prophets here in this part of the New Testament were forth-tellers as much as foretellers, perhaps even more so. But the fact is that the gift of prophecy in the context of these times included bits of information or revelation that God gave directly to them for the church. Now these bits of information were always tested by the church. Just because somebody said this is a prophecy didn't mean the church accepted it. The prophets compared with each other what the messages were. And certainly they compared it with what they knew of Jesus' teaching and their scriptures, the Old Testament that they had. But probably one of the prophets spoke on behalf of the Holy Spirit making this announcement to the church. However it came, there was no uncertainty or doubt about it. God was doing something very special. My application here is simply this, that we are never closer to the heart of God than when we are involved in missions. When we are reaching out to those who are without Christ, we have said before that we see ourselves as a mission center, as a local church. We see ourselves as missionaries, and so as we are going about our work 
As people in Grace Church Roseville, if we're really on target with our mission, we are close to the heart of God because missions begins with His heart. That's why I'm glad that we have selected that imagery to talk about our, our mission, our purpose as a church, because I think it's so thoroughly biblical that we see ourselves as a mission center or a mission station in the world. There's a second principle that I see in our text, and that is that sending out servants or missions follows the establishment of a church. Now, from the very beginning of a group of people meeting together, there can be and really needs to be outreach. That's part of God's plan for us. But it really is the established church that becomes the seedbed of missions. One that is established. It was in this society of saints, to use the term that we used last week, in this congregation in Antioch, in this local church, that the Holy Spirit kicked off the work of missions. That's not accidental. The Holy Spirit didn't move on Saul's heart up there in Tarsus, apart from a church, to be a missionary. He didn't catch Barnabas in between Jerusalem and Antioch somewhere and say, you're to be a missionary. He spoke to them in the context of a local church. A local church that is, well, it's kind of hard to tell, but maybe three to five years old. So this is not an old church, but it is an established church. We see that from the fact that it's organized. By the way, any church has to be organized. It has to be an organization. And uh, depending upon a lot of factors, it's either very simple or very complex. Usually, the more simple it is, the better it's able to get its work done. I have a pastor friend who began to pastor a large, established church in Chicago, and there were, I forget now, but it was 70-some committees in the church. Can you imagine trying to get anything done with 70 committees? And in the seven years he was there, one of the great accomplishments was to cut that down by about half. Thirty-five committees still boggles my mind. Some churches are very complex, some are simple, but they all have to be organized. And here we see uh, five men who are named, and these are gifted men. They have been given the place of leadership in the church. They've been called of God. They've, they've risen to the point in their giftedness and in, in their maturity that God has appointed them to be the shepherds of the church. And so here we have an established church. God doesn't intend for any church to become a depot. We are rather a deployment center. We're not a place just to come and mill around and wait for the kingdom of God express to come by. We are a deployment center. We're to come here and then to be deployed out to the places where God assigns us in our vocations and our neighborhoods. We're a deployment center. We're not a collecting point for Christians on their way to heaven. We're a command center where God's servants get their orders and get equipped 
and then get going on their assignments. Now, this established church that we're talking about is the place where the Spirit of God made his announcement that missions must begin. These Spirit-filled leaders were ministering to the Lord. Now, that's an interesting phrase. It's not real easy to understand all that it means, but the word minister means to serve the Lord in liturgical service. The word here is the word that we use for liturgy. And we usually think of liturgy as uh, getting down on your knees at a certain point in the service and then getting back up again and reading certain things and closing the books and putting them away. It's kind of the outward thing. But that's not the idea in the New Testament. It meant to be involved in serving the Lord with worship. Ministering to Him in worship. And they were fasting. Now, you want to talk about something foreign to the church, we could talk about fasting. Now, fasting didn't mean that they were trying to prove themselves to God, that they were trying to be more spiritual than the others by refraining from food for a time, but it simply meant that they were seeking to really focus on spiritual things. That's the idea in fasting. It's not some meritorious thing that we do to impress God. To make God hear us. That's not the idea. But it allows our hearts, our minds, our spirits to focus on spiritual things once your stomach stops growling. you got to get past that point. Then you can focus on spiritual things. Now that's what these guys were doing. They were ministering to God, worshiping Him. They were fasting. They, They knew what their priorities were as leaders. And it's in that context that God spoke to them. And they in turn led the body according to what they heard. God uses spiritual leaders like this to make his will known to the assembly of the saints. There is no democratic process in the New Testament. That seems foreign and counter to our American thinking. But the local church described in the New Testament is not a democracy. We do see the local church, it would seem, lifting their hands, as the verb says, to choose their leaders, to be appointed in leaders. From that point on, they submit to the leaders that God has placed over them. It's no accident that Jesus and the apostles used the shepherds and the sheep as a picture of how a church is to function. Not in who's important or that there's some division between pastors and laity or that there is somehow some people who are more spiritual than others for all on the same ground at the cross. But in terms of functioning and getting things done, he says shepherds and sheep, elders and congregation. And here it is to the elders that the Holy Spirit speaks. But we understand the whole church to be involved in this process. It's not just the elders doing their thing over here. And the congregation over here uninvolved. Because it's to the whole church that Barnabas and Saul come back eventually to give their missionary report after having been gone for this year or year and a half. 
is to the whole church. And so there was some sense that the whole church participated in, in this wonderful event. But it was to the leadership that God exposed his will. And the church participated in that. It was an established church where missions went forth. The third principle that I see is that missions or sending out of servants is the sovereign work of the Spirit. Notice the Holy Spirit says, Separate or set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now the tense of this verb is not that the Holy Spirit had called them at that moment, but in the past had extended that call to them, and this was part of the process of it being carried out. Barnabas and Saul knew something was up, is the implication here. And now the Holy Spirit confirms that. He sovereignly has called these two men to take the gospel to other parts of the world. Who did he call? Well, notice that he called leaders. Men with proven character, men with proven service for the Lord Jesus Christ. Men who knew what it was to worship God and out of that worship to work for God. You can never separate those two, by the way. That's why part of our mission statement says that we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a community of believers whose purpose is to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to prepare ourselves through biblical instruction, service, and fellowship in order to evangelize the world. Worship precedes work. It must always be that way or our work becomes drudgery and meaningless. It loses focus and direction. On the other hand, if all we do is worship and we don't work, our worship becomes mere sentiment and it doesn't accomplish much. And so worship and work go hand in hand. These men understood that. The sovereign Holy Spirit called these men to their task out of their worship and service. Everything about their past had prepared them for this moment. I'm not sure I fully understand that. I'd like to study it more, in fact, as to how what Barnabas and Saul did before this, and even what they did together before this, prepared them for this momentous time when the Holy Spirit would send them out. I want you to notice that Barnabas and Saul did not volunteer for this. The church did not select them for this. The leaders did not take a vote and say, well, we, we need to send these two. No, as much as we can tell, it was the voice of God sovereignly calling out these two. And I think that there is some sense in which every person who goes into special service for God, by that I mean some kind of full-time service, needs to have that call of God upon his life. If I had gone into the pastorate because somebody in my church had told me that I should do that when I got big, or because my mama felt I should be a pastor, which she didn't early on, that I wouldn't have lasted 20-some years. 
The thing that has kept me going is that I know God has called me to do this, and woe is me if I don't. And the thing that will keep you going in special service for God is the thing that I'm talking about, that God has called you to do this. Now, is it always a lifetime calling? It wouldn't seem so. I see no problem with the Holy Spirit setting aside people for periods of time in their lives for special service. There are some of you that are near retirement and you're saying, Oh boy, Florida, here I come. And God may say, You like the tropics? Try Africa. Try South America. Do you like tropics? You want warm weather? You like mountains? Try Quito. Beautiful mountains there, so I hear. See? It may be that God is going to call you for this retirement time of your life to some sort of special service. Some of you may be involved in being sent out from this church in a branch church one day. And in that sense, sent out to special service. That's a little different category than what I've been talking about, but that's something I want to mention. The Holy Spirit is the one who chooses. The Holy Spirit is the one who calls. Today we have another pattern that seems to be more common, and that is that a young person goes off to a missions conference somewhere, comes back and announces to the church, I've been called to missions. And I, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit can't do that or hasn't done that, because I think He has. But we as a congregation at that point need to ask a couple of questions. Number one, uh, how have you heard the voice of God? What makes you think this? Number two, what have you been doing in our church to prepare you to go to missions? Have you proven your character and proven your service here in our congregation? Because you see, that's part of it. One doesn't become a missionary by going somewhere and changing his address. One who is called of the Holy Spirit to be a missionary, I believe, is one who has already proven himself, in some sense, in the local church where he plugs in. It seems to me that call to special service must always be in conjunction with a local church. There have been one or two people who have actually been on their way to some mission field assignment, usually short term, and have almost written back to tell us, bye, we've gone. My, how out of focus that is with what the New Testament teaches that any kind of being sent out needs to be in conjunction with the, the local church, with its approval, and with a sense of accountability back to that congregation out of which one has been called. A sense of responsibility to the Lord, but also to His church. One cannot separate the church from missions. And the fourth principle that I want to point out is that the sending out of servants or missions is the obedient response of the church. Here we see the leaders and 
I think also the congregation cooperating with the Holy Spirit in the genesis of missions. G. Campbell Morgan says, There is one body and one spirit. The spirit is the life of the body. The body is the instrument of the spirit. The spirit is the Holy Spirit of God. The body is the assembly of the saints. The spirit works through the assembly, but the assembly has no power to move save under the inspiration and impulse of the Spirit. There is one body, and the body must cooperate with the Spirit in separating its members for particular service. And that's what this body did. It says that they prayed, and they fasted, and then they officially sent them apart to service. Notice what they did. They laid their hands on them. There's the old joke about the ordination of pastors. That it's usually the placing of empty hands on empty heads. What does it mean to place the hands on the head? Well, it's a symbolic act, of course. There is nothing that's imparted in that sense, spiritually. But it is an important symbolic act because it means that this body of people officially recognize the appointment of these two men. There is a bond between them. And this body is now delegating these men to go out to a specific assignment. This body is identifying with these people. It is promising to pray for them. I believe the people in Antioch prayed for Barnabas and Saul. And they probably got very few missionary letters. But they prayed for these men while they were gone and rejoiced when they came back bringing their report. When they lay their hands on them, they are giving them authority from the church to serve. And it says they released them. They let them go. It means that they released Barnabas and Saul from whatever responsibilities they had in the church. One of the prophets, one of the teachers, now teamed together, they are released from the church to go to the work that God has called them to. And they have authority from that church to do it as representatives of the congregation. The Great Commission, by the way, is given primarily to the church and not just to individuals. When Jesus said, go into all the world, he was speaking to us as a body of people. Now again, with our autonomous culture forcing a certain context on us, when we hear that, we think, I am to go into all the world. And there is a sense in which we accept that as being true. And yet when Jesus said it, he was saying it to his group. And when he says, go into all the world to us today, he's saying it to us as a body of people. And all of us are not going into all the world, but we all are going through those that we lay our hands on. We're sending them out. And so the sum of the principles that I see here is that missions begins with God. It takes, con it takes place in the context of an established church. It is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit, and it is the church's obedient response which sends them out. Now, there are implications to what I am saying today. 
It means that just because you get a prayer letter from a friend of yours in college who says, God's called me to do this, that somehow you ought to feel guilty if you don't send them five bucks. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? We get those kinds of letters. Because missions takes place in the context of a local church. And if you have a friend like that, what you need to do is to write back and say, well, what church has laid its hands on you and sent you forth? Since we were in college together, how has your your service to the Lord been proven? What is your character? What is your relationship to your church? Are you coming back to give an account to your church? Because you see, missions and the local church are hand in hand. You can't separate the two. It always needs to be in conjunction, the one with the other. George Peters says, World evangelism is the imperative of the New Testament. The gospel must first be proclaimed or heralded among all nations, Mark 13.20. He continues, The paraclete to accomplish the task is the Holy Spirit, while the divinely chosen agency for the proclamation is the church of Jesus Christ. These are sobering and scriptural assertions. The sending out of servants is as natural to a church as bearing apples would be to an apple tree. It's part of the fruit of being an established church under the blessing of God. And we as a church have a responsibility for those people we send out. Our first responsibility is to make sure that God has called them. We're not very good at that. We depend upon mission agencies to do that. Mission agencies, by the way, are pretty hard to locate in the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean they're wrong, necessarily. Our world today is a lot more complex than the world was then. I think mission agencies have a role, but folks, mission agencies are not the sending agency. They have a role to play, but the church is the sending agency. And the church needs to be sure that the people it supports or is going to support are prepared to go, are called of God, are doing their work while they're there, and then come back to share the good news of what God has done. And the church comes together to hear because the church has been a part of this. Why is it when we know a missionary is going to speak, we find other things to do that night? Because missions is what we're about. We we, we need to understand that these people who are coming back to tell us what God has done are sharing with us not only their lives, but our lives. Because we're part and parcel of them. Sending out of servants is big business. It's hundreds of millions of dollars being invested around the world. And it's part of our responsibility as a church to make sure that at least those that we're supporting are good investments, that the money is well invested, their lives are being well invested, our prayers are being well invested. And when they come back to tell us, that's when we we get the bottom line. That's when we hear the report. The sending out of servants on this Labor Day weekend, let's remember the labor force. In, in one very real sense, all of us are part of that force because we're all missionaries. But some 
among us, the Holy Spirit is going to say, separate me, these people. And we as a church will have the joy of laying our hands on them and releasing them to go to the work that God has called them to do. What a high privilege. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have sent out your servants. We are your servants. And you've sent us to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, to our networks, to represent you there, to proclaim the cross. May we be faithful missionaries. We pray that you will see that your work in our lives has been a good investment. Help us also to apply what we've learned this morning in this text to the work of missions in our church. And may we see that as your heart and know that we are close to your heart when we are involved in this work of laying our hands on those servants that you call sovereignly to special service. In Jesus' name, amen.